This is the voice of Carnage, and you are listening to Carnage Cast. Hi, everyone. I'm Tyler, and welcome to an extra sort of Carnage Cast where we talk with Andrew Valkoskis, uh, designer and writer of Fate of the Norns Ragnarok, a role playing game about the Viking epics. Hi, Andrew. How are you? Not too bad. How are you, Tyler? Good. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, pleasure to be here. So, Fate of the Norns Ragnarok is a game that's been around for a long time, but it's going through a rebirth right now. Yeah, actually, we've been uh, around for quite some time. It's our 20th anniversary for the whole Fate of the Norns franchise. The thing is, for about 18 of those years, it's been really just a labor of love, uh, no intent to monetize or go mainstream. Uh, And then now, with the 20th anniversary rolling around, um, our fans have pretty much organized themselves into critical mass and have demanded that we've gone into that we'd go into print uh with all of, you know the nostalgic editions so we've got uh, first edition out in print now and um we really got infected by their enthusiasm and uh we're not stopping there we've decided to launch a brand new edition of Fate of the Norns Ragnarok which is our viking RPG that uses runes instead of dice and is a blend of the historical and mythological uh, brought to your tabletop. It, it, it's, t- it's drawing from the, the, the Viking epic traditions, but it's also bringing in fan- uh, even more fantastic elements. Absolutely. So right now, the, the world has plunged into the second age of Ragnarok with the new edition. And what Ragnarok is, just to take a step back and maybe go into the mythology a little bit, is the final showdown between the gods and the Jotuns, uh, which are the giants. Uh, they've been at each other for, you know, a millennia, and what happens is the grievances have just gotten too bad, and uh, finally, you know, all of the realms upon the world tree Yggdrasil are dragged into this final confrontation between these two titanic forces. And so what heralds the start of Ragnarok are the sun and the moon getting devoured by two celestial wolves, and that basically sets a major tone across the the world of Fate of the Norns Ragnarok, which is it's a very dark and cold place. So you can imagine without sun and moon, uh, all of the farmer's fields wither and die. The world is covered in cold, you know, white snow, and pretty much everyone has dropped into a mode of desperation and survival. It's a very gritty setting. And um, the players basically have to not only survive the, the threats of Midgard, which is the realm of man, but they have to take, take sides and basically try to guide their side to a winning victory condition at Ragnarok. So you've got the gods meddling in the humans' affairs, and the players are pretty much cast in the center stage. You mentioned the players have to uh, ensure their side wins. Do they always have the same side? No, absolutely not. So uh, one of the things that we've been trying to do uh, for the last many years is paint a complete portrait of both sides of the conflict. So if you go back into the classic Viking sagas, um, usually you end up getting a very, very detailed picture of what the side of the gods looks like. But from the side of the Jotuns, you get these like teaser moments in the sagas of something that looks extremely interesting, but they don't end up you know, evolving that. So what we've done in the lore of Fate of the Norns is really completed the whole picture from both sides of the coin. And so now we allow the players to choose which camp they'd like to uh, to back. And we've had situations, lots of 
campaigns that we've run at uh, conventions and whatnot, where players just decided, you know what, let's just, you know, have the two sides bid for our services and we'll pick the highest bidder. So, you know, pretty much anything goes. And, you know, that's that's the nature of the role-playing. Right, because in that uh, struggle to survive the end of the world, it's whatever's going to get you through this, whichever side it may be. Exactly. You mentioned that uh, Fate of the Norns uses a, a rune-based system as opposed to traditional dice. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think somewhere in the mid-2000s, I started playing around with the idea of adding runes to our existing 2D10 system. And the more I looked at it, the more I felt that, you know, if we found a way to create a, a complete, you know, all-encompassing game mechanic just utilizing the runes, I think we'd really be able to set the mood and tone at the, at the gamer's table. I mean, what else feels more Viking-like and Nordic-like than having, you know, the Nordic runes at the table and you're basically drawing the runes to figure out everyone's destiny and place in the world? So um, it took a couple of years to put together because there was really no other system out there that we could model ourselves on. So, uh, you know, the first two incarnations uh, were very, very short-lived. And then finally, about 2006, we ended up coming up with a very stable rule set that uh, managed to handle skill resolution, uh, just any kind of challenge resolution, and full-fledged combat resolution. And there were a couple of things that uh, the players ended up giving us feedback on over the last six years, uh, namely, you know, the infamous condition engine that people found didn't scale well at very high levels, and along with a couple of other really key points that we've been working through to make sure that, you know, this anniversary edition, we've got a very, very solid rule base uh, that works at low levels, high levels, and all the permutations with, you know, all the archetypes that we've got in the universe. So um, I don't know if you want me to go into a little bit on how the mechanics would work with those runes. Yeah, yeah, G- give us uh, sort of the basic resolution system. Okay, so... Um, it works with the Futhark rune set. So um, some, you know, game stores will carry those sets, uh, you know, in the New Age divination uh, areas. And so if you pick those up, what we have are the 24 runes divided, excuse me, into uh, three eights, A-E-T-T. That's the uh, Nordic term for one of the subsets of the 24 runes. And what we do is we map three umbrella traits to those uh, so, you know how you'd have, let's say, in D&D, Strength, Wisdom, Intelligence, Constitution, we've got uh, physical, mental, and spiritual. So there are eight physical runes, eight mental runes, eight spiritual runes. And that encompasses all types of challenges that you would face within the game. They'd all file under one of those three umbrellas, or maybe a combination of. Let me talk about two of the key attributes before I, I launch into the skill check. There's two key attributes uh, in the game. One is essence and one is destiny. So essence is the amount of runes that you know out of those 24. And each for each rune you know, it's bound to an active power, a passive power, and a skill. So if you have an essence of five, you will have five active powers, five passive powers, and five skills. Those five essence also uh, embody your life force. So um, the more essence you have, the tougher you are to take down. Uh, and then the second attribute is destiny. And that's the amount of runes you draw from, let's say, those five, from your essence. So destiny encompasses your impact on the world. So the higher your destiny, the more you can do. And by the more runes you draw, the higher the potency of the effect. So with those two attributes, 
players basically buy into both attributes with their level. So if, let's say the Norn said the campaign is at level 20, I'd like uh, everyone to make level 20 characters. So the way it would work is a player would buy an S one point of essence for one level or one point of destiny for two levels, just because of the, the potency of the effect. So you can easily make yourself, you know, 10 essence, 5 destiny with a level 20 character. And that would mean you'd have 10 runes, which would ha give you, you know, 10 active, 10 passives, 10 skills, and also would give you a pull of 5 runes from those 10. So this brings us to, again, back to the skill example, where um, when you're asked to do a skill check, or any kind of check, the Norn will ask you to draw your destiny. It's a weird, which is the Viking term for revealing your destiny. So you would randomly reach into your bag and pull out, you know, a handful of runes which would be equivalent to your destiny. And so let's take that example of five destiny. And you're trying to do a lockpick check. Well, then you're going to take a look at those runes that you drew. And depending on the traits that you pulled and the amount of those trait runes that you pulled, does it match or exceed the difficulty of the endeavor that you're trying to do? So the Norn in his head might say, you know, this is a maybe a, a moderate difficulty uh, attempt, and you're going to need to pull three physical runes. So if you end up pulling three of those physical runes or more, and you add that to your ranks in the skill, then you've succeeded. And there, it's not a, just a success or failure. But because there's that, you know, very gray area in terms of you can miss your success by one or supersede your successes, it lends itself to a really good narrative in terms of, you know, what happens from that attempt. You can extract a lot of story from what the runes are telling you. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And uh, we do have a YouTube channel, actually, that um, explains things like skill resolution, combat resolution, things like that, because um, our goal in the design process for the, the first incarnation of Ragnarok, and especially this anniversary edition incarnation, is we challenge every rule that we've got in there. Is it easy to learn, and is it long to master? We want the game to be as easy and accessible to pick up and start playing, but we want it crunchy enough that it'll take you, you know, weeks, months, years to find all these really interesting combinations and builds that the game can lend itself to. Mm -hmm. So. That, that's part of our design principle, but we realize that people are in that dice paradigm, and so talking about runes really takes people in a, a different space. So there's always that aha moment, as you know, you're explaining it in the first two minutes of, uh, let's say, a, a playtest demo at a convention. Can you give an example of that uh, quick-to-learn, long-to-master uh, paradigm? So the way character creation works is uh, you spend points on, let's say, uh, Essence and Destiny, which are those two main attributes, to determine how many powers you'll have and how many you'll draw. And then once you have to bind your runes to the active, passive, and skill, what we have is kind of like a chessboard of abilities. So if you can picture this, you start in the center of the chessboard, and for every rune you have, you can move uh, one square, non-diagonal, so up, down, right, left. Mm -hmm. And so once you've selected an ability on there, other options on that board open up as well. So no two characters would be the same, or it's unlikely. So if two people were to play the same archetype, uh, first of all, they'd vary in their um, essence and destiny choices. Some people might be more uh, conservative and say, I want more powers, but I'll draw less, and vice versa. And then 
when you end up pulling your runes, you might have different distributions of physical, mental, and spiritual. And then when it comes to, again, choosing your abilities on the skill boards, again, depending on which direction people move on the ability boards and power boards and skill boards, again, the builds can vary very, very differently from class to class. And what we're introducing in the new edition is a use for the blank rune. Now, every time you buy a, a set of runes, they always give you a blank rune. In case you lose one, you can always scribe down the rune that you lost. And so, you know, this has kind of been sitting at, um, at gamers' tables for the last six years, and they're like, well, what do we do with this besides, you know, we lose a rune? So they said, well, why not make that an extra customization that players can do, where they can take a, a subtype within an archetype. So if you've got, let's say, a Scald, you might have three subtype archetypes of like a Traveler, a Show-Off, or a Mystic, depending on, you know, the type of Scald that they want to play, which is a Bard. Mm-hmm. That would bind, you know, a special active, passive, and skill to that uh, blank rune. So there's a lot of customization in, in character creation, so much so that, you know, we don't even feel like we need to throw all 16 Fate of the Norns archetypes into the main rule, the first rule book. Uh, what we're, our design paradigm is going to be is, you know, we're going to go narrower in terms of the, the selection, but we're going to go deeper making sure that each one of them really is a treat to play, that even if everyone at the table says, you know, we all want to play Berserkers, well, everyone can have their own type of Berserker. Can you go a little more into the into how character options and design are set up? I know you mentioned archetypes. How does that sort of relate to the usual conception of a class or a profession? So it's very similar. I think we used to call it occupation. Somewhere along the way, the, the, chain, the name changed to archetype. Uh, some of the archetypes we have are like Skald, Berserker, Druid, Blacksmith, uh, Maiden of Ratatos. They're uh, drawn from the sagas, the Viking sagas, uh, of really interesting characters that we've uh, encountered in our research. Um, and then we've put our own little Fate of the Norn spin on them. And so each one of them has their own distinct flavor. Uh, one of the things that we've really made an, a conscious effort to avoid that whole MMORPG, you know, tank DPS, uh, buffer, unbuffer type of roles. We want everyone to be able to have that opportunity to be a hero within the game. So not someone relegated, oh, you're the healer, you know, and that's all you're good at and that's all you're going to do. Um, we want everyone to be able to say, you know, we're going to pick the characters we want and there's not going to be a situation where, well, who's going to be the DPS? Someone has to be the DPS. So, we want to make sure that people really can go with what their heart desires in this game rather than be relegated to, you know, slaves of the mechanics of the game. So with the first rule book you're you're going deep into some of the some of the archetypes available to players. Uh can you throw out some more examples of of how deep you're going and, and what that's gonna to bring to uh the players uh choices? Yeah, absolutely. So in the Previous edition, we were going, I think, a little bit more quantity over quality, uh, or not quality, but depth, uh, a deep dive into the archetypes. What we'd rather do is do a deeper dive. So one of the things we realized was the archetypes lend themselves to a whole niche of really interesting abilities. Uh, for example, you take the Scythe Kona, and she's all about the spiritual, unseen world of magic. And there's a lot of, you know, consultation type magic and alteration type magic. Um, you know, she doesn't throw fireballs. She subtly changes the flow of the battlefield and, you know, people are caught 
you know, with their pants down when it's too late. And um, we wanted to explore more of what she has to offer rather than, you know, write less powers for her and less abilities and move on to another archetype. We realized that we have so much stuff that we could sink into, let's say, the Psychona archetype, which is the witch, that it's worth, you know, sacrificing one extra archetype to actually deep dive her. So more of the types of equipment that she works with, her entourage, uh, what's her place in the world, what are the colorful descriptions of each one of her abilities, rather than just, you know, listing off the mechanics, you know, what are the visuals, what are the, the role-playing aspects? Because a lot of these abilities are not, you know, a 66 fireball. A lot of them are very, very useful in combat and out of combat. So how, what are the nuances outside of combat when some of these abilities are triggered? So that's, that's the, uh, the deep dive that we want to do with this edition. And then of course, once we've set the bar high for each one of these deep dives, for every one of the source books that now is going to release more of these archetypes, we're going to hold ourselves to the same standard. Okay. And with all these, uh, deep delving archetypes and the options available to players, what's sort of the, the basic setup for a group of players? Are they necessarily going to be a group working together? Are they disparate parties? And what their their activities are all being moderated by the Norn? Or is is there more of the traditional party play in there? So there there is a lot of the party play. Um, the game mechanics and the game is set up in such a way that you could have a very harmonious group that gets along and goes towards the same goals. Or there's also these curveball archetypes that we have in there. And let me go into two interesting ones. We've got the maiden Ratatosk, who is pretty much like a picture, a, a dancing spear maiden of chaos. She embodies Ratatosk, which is the celestial squirrel that carries messages between Eagle up in the top branches of Yggdrasil and Nidhogg the dragon that's lying at the roots. And Ratatos keeps, you know, changing the message that's going between the two to cause strife and chaos between the two. So what started as, you know, a very innocent conversation between the Eagle and the dragon has now turned into a blood feud because of Ratatos. So now these maidens, this archetype, the maiden of Ratatos, they embody that kind of chaos. So inside combat, they have the ability to draw aggression on themselves or even redirect aggression to others, uh, changing a lot of the dynamic within the combat. We've seen players where, you know, it's almost like PvP. Some players, you know, get into a feud outside prior to the combat. And the maiden says, well, you know what? I'm going to have everyone jump on you just for the previous, you know, uh, scuffle that we had. And uh, outside of combat, you know, she becomes extremely... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? She can create a lot of really interesting story hooks by just getting into trouble. And the party ends up having to, you know, kind of either join in in the chaos or try to settle the chaos and, and sort it out. And we've got another one, which is the Berserker, which is another really interesting one. When this guy flies into a rage, he can discern friend for foe at the beginning. The deeper he falls into the rage, the less he's actually figuring out, you know, discerning friend from foe. So again, as the combat progresses, the players have to start planning out their exit strategy before the combat finishes, otherwise they become fall prey to the position. So there's a lot of really interesting little twists that we build into each one of the archetypes to make them special, and not just, you know, another cookie-cutter build that's, you know, one-for-one balanced build between, you know, archetype A and archetype B. Um, And that's one of the things that we've constantly had positive feedback from players 
So we're keeping that up. Mm-hmm. And so what's the, is there a characteristic arc for a saga? What do you mean by characteristic arc? Like D&D has its zero to hero rise where you're, you're killing rats and then you're essentially a demigod at the end. Uh, is, is there sort of that sort of archetypal path for characters in Fate of the Norns? So the archetypes don't start out fighting rats. Usually they'll start off, you know, uh, with some sort of capability that puts them on a, a semi-heroic uh, career path. And then they'll work their way up to something extremely heroic, and, you know, they're dealing with, you know, a lot of things in the supernatural. Um, so there's that classic progression. But one of the interesting things is, uh, since the very first edition, we've always had a meta progression. Let me take a step back. In RPGs, death is usually the absolute worst penalty a, a game master can inflict upon a player. It's, you know, you were a bad player, I killed you, you deserved it. You know, rolled up newspaper across the nose. Right. But in Fate of the Norns, we could not go with that paradigm of thinking because in Viking mythology, a valorous death was something to be celebrated and sought out. The worst thing you could be is a coward or, you know, dying in your sleep without a sword in your hand. So we built that into the mechanics early on and we carried this through the editions. We actually reward a glorious death. And that's something some of the players can actually, you know, have a grin on their face when they die because better things are to come. Let me explain. So when someone is, you know, working through their career, uh, you know, they're not suicidal maniacs running into battle and trying to kill themselves. They're trying to build up a story. And the more of a heroic story that they have behind them, at the last time of their demise, for each one of these heroic tales that they have accomplished, there's an increased chance that the Valkyries are going to come down and pick up their souls and bring them either to Valhalla, if they're followers of the gods, or Glacisculier if they're followers of the gods. And what happens is, if they're successful in ascending to that level, then their character lineage gains in potency. So their next character has more options open to them. Now, it doesn't necessarily make them more powerful, but it makes them more useful to the party. And so there's that symbiosis of the players want to send off their ally in the best possible way once they die. So there are bonuses that are applied for all the efforts that the characters do to give them a proper send-off. So, you know, uh, leaving prized weapons with them at their grave, uh, hiring an angel of death to preside over the ceremony, regaling uh, the tales of their exploits. And all of that adds their percent chance of actually making it up into the heavens. And when they do, they get new options that open up to them that are very party-friendly. So the party actually... Uh, collectively uh, wins out from this. And it doesn't work in a way that where the guy that comes back with more options is more powerful and then everyone in the party feels uh, less potent. So that's one of the things that we're very conscientious of. And so with this meta progression, you'll start getting you know small options available to you, like creating you know half-troll uh, archetypes that are added onto your existing archetype selections, or having a philia, which is a guardian angel, uh, that gives you other abilities as well, uh, that again, party friendly, all the way up to your ultimate unlock, let's say, and I'm giving you air quotes here, mm-hmm. is the um, Heriar and the Son of Muspel. So you can actually play these demigod archetypes where these are the characters that actually died and went up into the heavens. So you can come back as one of those emissaries of the gods with the gods. And 
the gameplay at that point really starts getting up. Okay. Are, the, are these the things that a, a player might expect to see in a, in a single saga, or is this over multiple sagas? That's probably over multiple sagas. Um, so your progression, let's say over one character's lifetime, will be over one saga or multiple sagas. And then that meta progression of multiple characters going through, you know, life and death cycles, you're building up your, your meta repertoire. That's going to be over uh, an extended period of time. Mm-hmm. I like that collective progression mechanism. That's a good way to get everybody in on uh, a send-off. Yeah, and, and that's something that we've been really trying to work into this latest edition more than anything that we've done before, is try to make the game as social as possible. We've, we've looked at every single activity that turns out to be asocial, like a, a solitary activity at the table, let's say crafting, or, you know, someone dying and, you know, having to deal with their afterlife stuff. And how do we make that into a social spin so everyone at the table is engaged? Um, we want, and that, that's, you know, from how the combat system works to all how those extraneous activities also work. It's try, how do we pull everyone into that activity so no one's kind of sitting there, you know, looking at the, the wallpaper or, you know, looking over the character sheet while someone else is doing something. Right, right. Could you dive a little deeper into sort of the history of Fate of the Norns and how how it began 20 years ago and, and what's brought you to today? I think I started doing the research in Norse mythology back in 91 or so. and It just became a, a really a big interest of mine and a, a love affair and passion. And around the same time, I think I was starting to get a little bit disillusioned with the RPGs that were available uh, commercially. And so I kind of married the two activities together, you know, the research and the creation of, of another RPG. And um, that first one was based on a, a D percentile system. And, and it's pretty funny. The first one was actually supposed to be a computer game. Uh, we, we we started writing a whole bunch of design documents on how we were going to turn this into a, like a massively multiplayer RPG. And this was back in 92. We were talking assembler and how do we you know, open up pipes and send TCP connections across. And... Um, as we're test playing uh, uh, tabletop, the, the computer mechanics, more and more people started falling in love with the game as a tabletop, and computer version never materialized. We ended up going into PDF with uh, a tabletop version of the game. And, um, you know, we continued the research over the years, and uh, it was selling just as a, as a PDF with absolutely no marketing or anything like that. It wasn't intended to become a mainstream product. And the more I researched, the more, you know, I started building in more historical facts. So the second edition was really based more on the Midgard world. So we, we took a lot of the supernatural and pushed it a little bit to the side. And we focused more on you know, the politics, the kings, the uh, assassinations, the intrigues of the northern kingdoms, you know, Norway, Sweden, Iceland, uh, you know, the British Isles, uh, the Baltic region. And, um, and then when we started diving into, you know, the runes, we, we almost did a 180. We said, you know, let's move the historical off the table a little bit and go full-fledged mythology. Because, I mean, when you got the sun and the moon that's devoured, you're, you're starting to move away from the history and you're moving really into the, the heart and soul of the mythology. And so that became a lot more high fantasy. And, uh, that's where, that's where we're at with this new anniversary edition as well. So it's really um, 
it's a high fantasy uh, setting right now with a lot of the outer worlds of Midgard uh, being incorporated into the sagas. We've got, you know, Nidavellir, which is the realm of the dwarves, and the Spartalf time, which is the realm of the dark elves. And you know, we're starting to build up a lot of lore between Alfgard and Spartalf time, which are the two, the light elves and the dark elves. So uh, there might be a source book coming out soon for uh, for the War of the Elves as well. So, um, yeah, there's just been a lot of, you know, layers and layers added to this mythology that we've been building, not only drawing directly from the sagas and the history books, but also, like I mentioned earlier, it's filling in all the gaps uh, for all the other interesting tidbits that are, you know, hinted upon in these ancient books, uh, but not elaborated. Mm -hmm. That was something I was wondering about was... Um... How, how, how do you, as a designer and a creator of a world, sort of make that decision where how close you're going to cleave to the, the history or the, the the sagas versus what seems dramatically or fantastically appropriate? I think that's a decision you try to make at the start of a new edition uh, or of a game and try to adhere to that almost like a mission statement as best you can. And obviously the design process is very organic. It's, you, you try to make it as you know straightforward and scientific as possible, especially for the game mechanics. But it is an organic and, and creative process. But for the first one, we we're really kind of set on a, an equal mix of you know historical and mythological. And then for the second one, we really wanted to dive into you know the history and the kings and the feuds and whatnot. And then for the third one, I mean, we started doing a lot of reading on you know we did actually some did some retrospective on everything that we had read uh, prior to the Ragnarok and said, you know what? Everyone paints, especially like Marvel Comics, sets this precedent of the Jotans are the bad guys and the gods are the good guys. And then we were like, hey, we've been reading this for, you know, over a decade. And our opinion is slightly different. We're finding out that, you know, Odin is one really selfish SOB. And this guy will do anything it takes to, to get things done his way. And so it's it's a really gray world. There are no real, you know, clean cut good guys and bad guys. And so that's that's really the kind of world that we're painting, you know, from the divinity all the way down. So you'll even find, you know, the towns and the NPCs, which we call the denizens, are are really all shades of gray. You'll never find, you know, this like shining beacon paladin in the world, uh, or you won't find this like evil guy that's just evil for the sake of being evil. There's always a reason for it. Um, uh, and so that's, I think, something that we espouse over the last couple of years is something that we want to incorporate into the world now. Is, is there a particular example that comes to mind of where history slash the received mythology painted the genres one way, whereas maybe they were, they were actually another way? Sorry, I'm not following your question. Uh, stories and, uh, and, and tradition of sort of painted the Jotuns as the bad guys, but in, within Fate of the Norns, is there an example where they, they actually had a uh, legitimate reason for something they do, did? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that we've, uh, we did with the whole Ragnarok line of games is we open up the book with a list of grievances. So basically, um, it's, it's both sides kind of painting a picture of why Ragnarok has come to be, because that's the quickest way to get people into understanding, you know, okay, we're in the end times of Vikings, you know, all shit's about to hit the fan. Why is it? And so we've got this listing of grievances from both sides. And, you know, I can pick a couple here from the Jotun side. For example, you know, way back 
in the day when Asgard was being built, uh, Odin and, and company were like, hey, you know, we're going to commission the best architect uh, in the realm to, to build a wall around Asgard, and that was a Jotun. And uh, they commissioned him for the price of, uh, he wanted Freya's hand in marriage. And the conditions were he had to complete this within a year. And uh, he was getting really, really close to completing it, you know, very quickly. It wasn't going to take a year, it was very clear. So the, the the gods all of a sudden decided, well, how the heck do we, you know, kind of get him to, to screw up and, and not deliver on time? So they end up thinking up a, a plot where Loki will change into a, a really hot mare, and he's going to lure away the Jotun's uh, big workhorse that's, you know, hauling all of the stone. And uh, that's basically how Sleipner was born. It's, the, uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's an interesting story, a little bit of bestiality and, and transgender... Uh, Shape changing on Loki's part, and so next thing you know, you know the Jotun's kind of like chased off. Hey, you know you didn't complete your end of the bargain, and uh, they're just you know tale after tale where they kind of get screwed by the gods, and so we've got those listed to kind of paint the picture of you know one after another. What are what are the reasons that are culminating with those final you know moment of rage where the two sides are going to clash? Looking back at your your design process over the or these additions, is there a pattern or, or sort of path you're seeing emerge where you started off here and, and it led you here even though you, somewhere else, even though you didn't expect it? Yeah, um, especially with the runic base system. So um, I don't know if I mentioned this, so when I first started looking at the runes, I can tell you that the first dozen ideas at least that I had on, on how the runes would work as an all-encompassing mechanic just quickly fell on their face. Um, and then the ones that didn't obviously fall on their face, well, we had a lot of playtest sessions where it did fall on its face. And then we went and adapted it more and more. And um, one, I think, of the biggest challenges we had was there's that random factor in the runic system. You don't draw all of your abilities all at once. And... I think the chaos factor was a little bit higher in the early incarnations. And there was a lot of players that are used to having their entire repertoire of powers available to them all the time that were finding it, it was a difficult leap. So one of the things that we did was allow people to play with a ratio of destiny to essence. So if you're a type of player that doesn't like surprises, doesn't like uh, to only have a subset of their abilities at any given combat round, then what you're trying to do is minimize your essence and maximize your destiny. So you're pulling pretty much almost all your runes out in any given combat round. Obviously at a cost of versatility and the amount of ability. Um, whereas other players will say, okay, now I'm totally comfortable with the chaos. I like it. I like the fact that I'm pulling something completely different every round and I have to kind of decide what I'm going to do. And this was something that we introduced early on. And then I think the more people played the system, the more that people started appreciating that they didn't have their entire repertoire uh, available to them. And I started querying them, you know, why is that? Why the change of heart? Especially some of the people that I had known were very fervent on the side of, you know, less chaos. And they pretty much summarized it almost the same way, each one of them, which was, when we play our other RPGs, every round is the same. I can look at round, you know, round one, round two to eight, I can already pre-plan exactly what I'm going to do, and it's pretty much I'm going through the motions. 
in Fatal Nerves Ragnarok, every combat round, because it's tactical, we encourage the use of miniatures and a hex map, positioning matters, there's AoE, uh, and area of effect, sorry. And not every round will lend itself to use, you using your trademark move every, every time. So the interesting thing is every time you end up pulling out, you know, a subset of your abilities and you look at the battlefield, you look at where you are in your initiative, uh, because initiative matters as well and you can move pretty fluidly up and down the initiative scale. Um, depending on what you pulled, you know, where you are, where your allies are at, it makes things interesting absolutely every single round of combat. There is no just going through the motions and just trying to bring someone down to zero hit points. Um, and damage is actually very visceral in this game. Every time you take damage, you're taking runes from your bag, which are the, the runes that you would draw from, and you're moving them down the play mat out of reach of your bag. So every hit actually hurts. You're not going to find yourself down to one health and having your entire repertoire available to you. So you have to really gauge on, is it worth getting hit? Should I parry this blow? Do I move out of range? Uh, and then if I do take this hit, can someone, if I pull a rune that I need, can someone heal me and put me back in a situation where I can draw what I need? So there's a lot of those dynamics that keep people engaged. Uh, and I don't see that same kind of thing when we end up playing other tabletop systems where you know someone will just zone out for a while because they know what they're going to do for the next few turns. That ties back to what you mentioned earlier about the uh, play being simple to learn but deep to master because you have to figure out the answers to all these questions that are rising round after round. Exactly. And one of the really rewarding things that I have as a guy that runs these games at a lot of these convention demos is that flash of insight that I see on players' faces when, you know, they figured out their powers. They know when they pull these runes, they can use these powers. And then, you know, second combat in of the demo, they're like, hey, wait a minute, light bulb moment. If I end up making this sacrifice of runes, you know, they're thinking to themselves, and I pull them out and I maintain these runes, I've started to streamline my pull for exactly what I need. And so there's a lot of those types of optimizations that will happen through play um, that players will discover, and, it, and it's a really happy moment. How has uh, the convention circuit sort of benefited you as a feedback mechanism like that? It's It's been huge. Um We've been doing a lot of the local conventions here for a while, but uh, this year, because we're ramping up for a major commercial product, uh, we've gone to, let's say, Gen Con, which was a, a really big one. We ran marathon sessions for, I think, 16 hours a day. We were the first ones into the hall and the last ones to leave. The security guys would lock the doors and be like, okay, well, you guys are finished playing your game. Just make sure the door's closed behind you. <laughs> and I think we were living, I think, on three to four hours of sleep a night. And every single uh, session that we had, we'd have players just enthusiastically bombarding us with questions and suggestions and, and feedback. And what was most satisfying is we'd even see players from the day before come back the next day and try to catch us between sessions to discuss it a little bit more. And, you know, that's, that's when you know the game is engaging. Even though you're getting feedback that's going to help you improve the game, so you, you know that you're not at that perfect state yet, the fact that you are getting this feedback, you know you're you're very well on the right path. Mm -hmm. So even now, it's an iterative process where what you're hearing is feeding into the new edition. Exactly, exactly. So we, I'd say, are about eighty-five or ninety percent there uh, in terms of the final rule set. 
there's a couple of things we just need to iron out for scalability's sake. But uh, the main rule set is down. And if anyone's curious about, you know, just the the rules light version of the previous edition, which you know I'd say hasn't changed too much. The foundation has remained the same. Um, there's a free download uh, of a saga called Fafnir's Treasure. I think it's 80 plus pages. It has a light encapsulation of the rules and a quick saga that's based on uh, Wagner's opera, The Ring of the Nibelungs. It's a really legendary treasure that the players can go after. And uh, we've been running that at conventions and basically encouraging everyone to, to give it a download afterwards and see uh, you know, how it plays out for them. Because I can tell you, every time I've run it, it's never been the same same way twice. I mean, if I told you some of the stories, it's just, some of them are like divergently opposite in terms of how they, they turn out. It, it's really interesting to see. Mm-hmm. Is there a quick couple stories you could compare for us? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I remember one team, which was, uh, they were really, really focused on, on the goal. And they, they just wanted to get there and they were doing as much research as they could to get to that treasure. And I, I don't want to put any spoilers into this. But I can say that um, they were not a, a combat-oriented group, so they were always trying to find role-playing ways of, of getting around the challenges rather than you know diving in initially first. And they managed to get a boat into the final uh, encounter. And uh, I'll, I'll just leave it at that, that they got a boat to get to that final encounter. And they realized, they did a mythology check with, with the skills that they had available to them, and they realized that the guardians of this treasure had been these hags that, uh, you know, have been solitary for so many years. And they had managed to procure some slaves on their boat, and some of them were male slaves that, you know, were well-built, and some of the players were well-built. So they decided to put all the men at the stern of the ship, and they ended up using the magicians to kind of put in favorable lighting on there. And instead of fighting, they wanted to seduce the hags. And it was hilarious. Everyone was in stitches laughing, and I couldn't believe that someone was going to try to seduce the final encounter. So that was one of the, the far extremes of you know, let's avoid the combat and let's, and let's try to, uh, to get this done in the most colorful way. And I mean, that's going to be memorable with me for a very long time. And then another extreme is a team that was really, really bloodthirsty and they were just trying to, you know, stir up as much trouble as possible, even try to get, you know, the townsfolk to do the job for them. And they were back in town. And I think for the same amount of time as the other team that made it to the, the final encounter, these guys hadn't left like point A of the adventure. They, they, they were still at point A and there was still B, C, and D to do. And they ended up getting the two emissaries of the gods, which are the quest givers. There was a nine Harriar and a son of Muspel to fight. And these guys, like, if they fight, they're going to level the town. And that's exactly what started happening. And one of the players, you know, turns to me and says, you know, hey, Viking mythology, I'm supposed to, like, not run away from this, right? I'm supposed to just run into the fray and uh, be as brave as I can. And I'm sitting there going, well, these guys are kind of way out of your league. So, you know, you can probably run away and no one's going to think, you know, any less of you. And he's like, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm going to teleport onto the back of one of these guys and try to turn him into a fraud. And suffice it to say, part of his strategy worked, part of it didn't. He ends up dying. And I think it's one of the very few times where we had to actually pull in the afterlife rules because everyone started rallying around this guy. Because so like, I can't believe you end up trying to take on a demigod. So the town ends up getting leveled, and this guy ends up going into the heavens. So, you know, you end up looking at so many really funny endings to this saga, and uh, it's really enjoyable to see, you know, the players take 
the story that you've written in so many different interesting directions. It, the, the story's been written, but there's still plenty of room for them to make their own contributions to it. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. That's, uh, that's one of the things we've always done is to try and write the stories in a way where it's a sandbox rather than, you know, a linear, you have to do point A to point B to point C. Um, and, you know, I've got the added cheating benefit of I know the world inside out. So if people decide to take a, a, a sharp right turn when they should take a left turn, well, I can add a little bit. Excellent. So as part of the new edition launch, you're kickstarting it, right? Yeah. And uh, at, at the time we were recording this, you've already made your goal. So congratulations on that. Thank you very much. And uh, w what is the Kickstarter going to bring to the table for you? So what we were looking at funding was um, a lot of physical materials for this game. So as I mentioned, you know, Fatal Norns Universe has been in PDF for God knows how long. And this year is the first year we're actually looking at print and looking at manufacture. And so it it's going to be an ambitious project because we have uh, soft cover books, hard cover books to print. We have box sets to create. We have uh, custom rooms to create for this game. Uh, so you could buy, you know, a food art set, set out there, but a lot of times we get it on stone that's, you know, randomly shaped. We really need something that's rectangular in shape, flat in the back, and color-coded runes for the, remember the three traits, physical, mental, and spiritual. Mm -hmm. So uh, we've got uh, quite a bit of manufacturing cost to, to contend with here. And so thank God, you know, thank you for everyone out there that has contributed to the Kickstarter that has helped us achieve the, all the manufacturing goals that we need and as well pay for a lot of the art that we're going to require. So we've got two really, really stellar artists on this project. Uh, the first is Helena Rosova, who um, has this really unique tapestry medieval style to her work. And uh, a lot of the players have been really, really appreciating a lot of the banners that we've been using with her artwork. And the other's uh, legend in the gaming industry, Richard Kane Ferguson, Anyone who plays Magic or has uh, played any White Wolf games will recognize his art instantly. Uh, so he signed on to do some uh, unbelievably beautiful mural works and archetypes uh, portraits. So uh, with those two, their artwork, this is going to be like, you know, cover to cover, a work of art, you know, eye candy on every page. And that's really what we want to do. I mean, we set out, we don't want to compromise. We want to make sure that our 20th anniversary only rolls around once. We want to create something that's absolutely epic and and, um, and memorable. And then, you know, where it takes us from here is I think we're going to have, you know, we've got a really good working relationship. We're going to continue creating more and more source books after this goes live. My best estimate's probably early December. Worst case, don't quote me, like late December. Mm -hmm. Our goal is to get it out before the end of the year so people have it uh, as a Christmas stocking stuffer. Now, is this box set going to fit in a stocking or is it mighty and humongous? <laughs> It's uh, it's pretty heavy. Uh, we started calculating some of the shipping costs, and we really had to see how we can optimize those because for our most uh, deluxe version of the box set, there's two hardcover books in there. So we're bundling the new edition, uh, which is a pretty sizable book, and uh, the original edition of the game. And uh, we're putting in five sets of runes in semi-precious stone. So you can picture 120. 25, I'm doing the math right, 125 pieces of stone in that box set, along with, you know, some poster work, some um, play mats, a um, couple of other little props. So it, it becomes a very, very sizable and, and 
heavy box to hold. But I know as a player, I like those kinds of uh, products where you feel some good weight to them. Yeah, you might you uh, and uh, Steve Jackson's ogre might be in contention for heaviest Kickstarter. <laughs> Is there anything you, you've uh, learned during the process of crowdfunding that's uh, feeding into, if not the game itself, then publishing a game? Yeah, I think one of the... It is, what it's doing is really shaping our roadmap. Um, so over the last 20 years, we were very, very cognizant that our game had worldwide appeal. We've had emails from almost every corner of the globe over the years with you know questions, suggestions, and, and kind words. Um, but now what the Kickstarter has really identified for us is the key markets and the key areas of interest. Um, a lot of the uh, backers have requested localization of the product. So the, the top contenders right now are the German language, French language, and Russian. And, you know, Spanish and Italian being uh, following closely behind. So what we're probably going to be doing is, you know, we've got extra funds. Uh, we've already put in some stretch goals. We're going to do a, a free source book for everybody. Uh, we've hit one of our stretch goals for that. We're trending for another stretch goal, which is going to give us a lot of really beautiful poster maps from our artists. Uh, but if we have funds left over between, you know, let's say one of these stretch goals and the next one, we're going to see if we can start making some inroads into some localization because uh, I think the fans deserve it. And uh, for anyone who has not yet seen Fate of the North, you should definitely visit the Kickstarter page because there's so many gorgeous examples of the, the kind of art you're going to see in there. So when this episode drops, it'll be three or four days left to uh, for people who want to climb on board the Kickstarter campaign. You should definitely visit the Kickstarter site, uh, see what uh, see what Fate of the North has to offer. Visit the website, uh, the, the the Fate of the North website itself, and what's that URL? That's uh, www.fateofthedorns.com. Yeah, on that website, uh, where we don't really post news, it's uh, just major topics. Uh, the news is updated uh, daily on our Facebook fan page, which is facebook.com slash Multiple ways to get in touch with you and the project. As your closing thought, what kind of player, what kind of GM is going to want to check this game out and see if it's right for them? I think it's someone, uh, some gaming group that's looking for something different because really it, it is an offering that not only gives you a setting that's different um, and very unique in flavor, um, it's also the game mechanics. Uh, someone who's really interested in, in putting the dice on the shelf for a while and trying out a mechanic with uh, runes and seeing where that leads. I think it has a, a lot of potential. We already have ideas brewing for possibly other settings that use... Uh, a runic game system. Andrew, thank you very much for coming on Carnage Cast. I'd, I'd wish you luck with Fate of the Norns, but you're already succeeding, so congratulations on that, and I hope you wish you more. Thanks a lot, Tyler. It was really a pleasure talking to you. You've been listening to Carnage Cast, a production of NNEG LLC. All rights reserved. For more information, visit us at www.carnagecon.com.